0: Several years ago, when I was a youth minister, and I was a youth minister uh, for, for a number of years, um, but actually my very last year being a youth minister, we went uh, to a camp, we went to a beach camp, and we had pla- We were planning for months, and we were planning all kinds of beach games, planning on water time in the afternoon, in the ocean. Planning. We had uh, rented out several beach houses on the beach. We rented out a conference center right down from those beach houses I mean we had a you know a house a, a huge it' was like three four stories tall for the boys three four stories tall for the girls separate houses down from them we had the conference center where we had our meals and we had our worship services and we would spend small group time there and some other 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 time and uh, it was elevated and had um, you know swing and stuff underneath the the, uh, the deck. And uh, it was going to be a great time. I and mean, when we planned, I mean, again, I mean, we were planning for this for almost a full year. Uh, me as the youth minister and then the, the youth staff that we had with us, we were planning all these different activities and games and and then we uh, get everybody signed up and all the kids are excited going to the beach for camp. It's going to be fantastic. We had adults signed up to be sponsors. Yeah, going to the beach. It's going to be great. And we have all these expectations and we're picturing it in our head. And, you know, in the past, it had been a while, but I'd done beach camp before and I was comparing what this was going to be to what, what it was. So I had all these expectations. The kids had all these expectations. The leaders had all these expectations. And we get down there and we, we roll up and it's cloudy. But we're like, it's fine, no big deal. And we unload, put all the luggage up in the, uh, the houses, and we get all the uh, equipment. I had sent some some of the youth staff down early with the equipment, and we were getting that set up with the speakers and the, the TVs and the, the stuff for the, the band showed up. And we had a speaker coming in to preach and all this stuff. And the, the kitchen crew came, and we were getting ready. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it started to rain. And I kid you not. It rained all week. I mean, every day it rained. I mean, thunder, lightning, rain. Uh, it was cloudy all week. I don't think the sun came out once. Uh, but at least it made it, you know, cool. <laughs> uh, the afternoon, and so we, we uh, try to retool the week. I mean, because all of a sudden, once we got there, we realized our reality for the week was not going to match at all what our expectations were. Uh, and so... Uh, we, we tried to figure out, is there a way, if it continues to rain, to do all of our games inside? Uh, and so we start working on that, and we move some of the games outside, and we play them in the rain, on the beach. I think one afternoon, we got to go in the water for a couple of hours, or maybe an hour and a half, and that was it. Uh, and uh, we played the games either on the beach or in the, in the conference center. But... However, it turned out, there were great views, and honestly, by the end of the week, I didn't hear one complaint. By the end of the week, all, all it was was uh, everybody talking about how great it was and the memories they had, uh, but as the one who organized the thing, in my mind, all, all, you know, I, could, I could see and sense, now looking back on it as well, the expectations that I had, the expectations that everybody else had, and when we got there, it was completely different. In reality, the spiritual nature of the week far exceeded anything I could have thought of, but what I was looking forward to ended up being something completely different. Oftentimes, our expectations can ruin the reality we face, because there's many times we build things up in our heads, and we expect certain things about a certain situation, and then we show up to the situation, and it's not like quite like what we expect, but... Because we had been expecting this one thing, our experience of the thing is ruined. And we say to ourselves, which is the title of the message today, I didn't expect that. This is not my expectation. Put that in the comments section. I did not expect that. It didn't turn out at all like what I thought it would be. Kind of like the way 2020 has turned out, right? You didn't expect it to look like it looks so far. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect it to be like this. I didn't expect life to be like this. I didn't expect my job to be like this. I didn't expect marriage to be like this. I didn't expect having kids to be like this. I didn't expect anything to be like it is. And our expectations can many times set us up for failure when we allow them to. And we're going to look at a particular portion of scripture today. This is the final message in our behind the scenes series, part seven, behind the scenes. Uh, I didn't expect that and we're going to be looking at a situation where expectations didn't just ruin a situation for some people. It nearly ruined their faith and their lives as a result. You see, Jesus had uh, been on the earth for you know, several decades. Uh, He's about 30 years old. He starts doing his ministry. And he gathers his disciples around him and he's teaching them and he's showing them things and he's guiding them and they're seeing miracles. At one point, he, he, he gives them authority to go out, you know, and, and uh, uh, teach people and to do miracles themselves. And they go out and they do it and they come back and give the report and they're saying, Jesus, it was amazing. People were healed. Demons were pulled out of people. It was an incredible experience. And uh, Jesus continues to teach them and instruct them and guide them and show them so many amazing things. And then, uh, after doing ministry for several years, they make their way to Jerusalem. And once they get to Jerusalem, Jesus uh, faces you know a great welcome <laughs> from people. And then at the end of that week, Passion Week, uh, he gets arrested. He gets arrested by a mob led by one of his own followers. Judas, and uh, having been arrested, he's taken to a trial, a trial that was already decided before he was ever arrested, a trial that fake witnesses are brought in, a trial that wasn't even a trial, a trial that was honestly illegal by, the own, by their own laws, if they were judged by their own laws, and he's taken by this fake trial, taken to another, b- b- before another authority. Then that authority passes it off to another authority. They pass it off back to the first authority. Uh, and it's, it's this uh, political hot potato game because nobody wants to deal with the issue of Jesus. Uh, and he's questioned at every stage of all these fake inquisitions, all these fake trials. And um, finally gets to Pilate, who's the governor. Uh, and, and Pilate's trying to let Jesus go, trying to let Jesus uh, uh, free. Uh, he, his, wife, his own wife told him, I had a dream about this guy. You need to let him go free right now. Pilate uses one of their own traditions, the, the culture's traditions, to try to let Jesus free, but the people weren't having it. And so finally, Pilate gives in to the mob uh, because he doesn't want to go against the people. He doesn't want to lose his position as governor. He wants to keep his power, and so he gives in. And they take Jesus away to crucify him. And so they take him away to crucify him, and they take him to this place and they nail him to a cross. And that's where we're going to look uh, today first uh, before we get to some other scripture. But in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse uh, 32, uh, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place, that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So it says they took Jesus and they led him away to be put to death. And they led him away with two other people, two criminals, two thieves, another one of the gospels tells us. They take him to this special hill and they they set him up to be crucified there to put it on display so everybody can see it. There was a crowd gathering to to watch the execution. And they crucify him, which means, I mean, it's a terrible form of execution. But uh, they they had different ways of crucifying him. But from what we can tell from the scripture, is they spread out of his arms on cross beams, and they nailed his arms to the wood, and then they nailed his feet to the wood, and he's hanging there, bleeding, and eventually he would suffocate because his body couldn't support itself to get breath. He didn't die from. They, did, you know, people who were crucified didn't die from bleeding to death. They suffocated to death. So he's hanging there on the cross, uh, intentionally in humiliation, and he's there with these criminals, these thieves. Now this is an important part of the story uh, because it was prophesied that this would happen in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet prophesied in Isaiah 53 that. Uh, verse 12, that he would be numbered among the transgressors, among the sinners. The, the criminals, the thieves, they were thieves. That's what they did. That's what they, That's how they functioned. That's why they were arrested. That's why they were being executed. And it says Jesus in Isaiah 53, that the Son of God, the coming Messiah, the one who would save the world, would be numbered among the sinners, among the criminals. And he was by being crucified in between them. Look at what happens next, verse 34. Jesus said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So Jesus prays for the very guys who are crucifying, for the very guys who are putting him to death. He prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Now, this is also prophesied in that same passage, Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says that Jesus will make intercession. For the sinners, Jesus will make Jesus will pray for those very ones. That's what he's doing. He's praying for the guys who are putting him to death. Which interestingly enough, if those people believed, Jesus' death, that he's dying in that very moment would bring the forgiveness for which he was praying. The very thing he's doing in dying would be the answer to his prayer if the people simply believed. And so he prays that they would receive forgiveness. That they would believe and receive forgiveness. But the people putting him to death, the Roman guards, weren't the only ones there. All right? Verse 35. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So you have, it says, the people standing there. People stood by. There was a great crowd there. But then you also have the rulers, the the religious leaders, the Jewish rulers are there, and they're making fun of him. You know, he saved other people. Let him save himself. If he really is the Christ, if he really is the Son of God, let him save himself. But also the soldiers made comments. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are the king of the Jews. Save yourself. So just like the the religious leaders are, are mocking him and making fun of him as he is dying for their sins, the soldiers are doing the same thing. If you are the king of the Jews, then prove it. Save yourself. Save yourself. There's also a sign over him, verse 38. There was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. So even though the sign was intended to be a mockery, it was actually stating the truth. This is the king. This is the king. It's, it's right there over his head. This is the king. And they're shouting at him. If you really are the son of God, if you really are the king, save yourself. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? You healed others. Why can't you heal yourself? And all this is being shouted at him. It's also interesting to note that as Jesus is doing the very thing God sent him to earth to do, He is not even acknowledging those who are screaming insults at him. They're saying terrible things about him, trying to get him riled up, but he's not paying attention to them because his eyes are focused elsewhere. He has his focus somewhere else. He has all this going on, but in the midst of the people yelling at him, in the midst of all the onlookers at the crowd, something else has been happening. He's he's alone. Even though he's got the crowd, even though he's got the religious leaders, even though he's got the soldiers, even though he's got the two criminals on either side of him, his disciples are not there. Now the book of John tells us that John came along, stood at a distance, and he was there. But not, it wasn't just that he was there. He was there observing. He was not there helping. He was not there to bring comfort. You see, because the disciples had all fled him fled from him in fear. The book of Mark tells us that in Mark chapter 14. All of them left him and fled. They they ran away from him. They, They fled from him because their expectations about what Jesus was supposed to do, about who Jesus was supposed to be, their expectations had not become reality. You know, Luke, in, in Luke chapter 24, some of the disciples, their own words, they say, we had hoped that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he would, implying that he's not because he's dying, he's dead. And so the disciples ran and fled because they, know, they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They doubted, they they, they didn't just doubt, uh, their actions backed up their doubt, and they refused to believe. That's why they ran, that's why they fled. And many times, probably more often than than we would like to admit, we have our own personal faith, just like those disciples, we have our own personal faith in our expectations more than then we have faith in Jesus. See, the disciples had faith in their expectations of who Jesus was supposed to be, about who they expected Jesus to be, about what they expected Jesus to do, about how they expected Jesus to live, about what they expected their future with Jesus would look like. And so their faith was in their expectations, and their faith was not in Jesus himself. Because if their faith was in Jesus himself, they would not have run. They would not have fled. They would not have, have been running for the hills, scared out of their minds, and then ended up locking themselves in an upper room for fear that they would be taken just like Jesus was taken, and they would die just as Jesus was dying. Their expectations did not match up with their reality. And our expectations, our expectations are... our attempt to interpret our past and present into an understandable future. What we do with our expectations is we try to take what we know about our past, what we know about our present, and, and make them line up into an understandable future, into something that makes sense, so we know what's coming, so we can anticipate what's coming, so we can expect what's coming. And so these disciples did just that. They took what they knew about their past about how they had been taught by their religious leaders about the coming Messiah, about what they'd experienced with Jesus. He can do miracles. He can raise the dead. He can feed 5,000. He can walk on water. He can command the weather. He can do all of these things. They took all of that along with their present circumstances. Jesus was dying. And now their expectations were blown because they didn't know what they were going to do. They thought Jesus was going to come along with all his power, with all his miracles, with what they thought was divine power, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government, and he was going to be a physical king and and, uh, kick out all the Roman guards, and he was going to set his throne down there in Jerusalem, and he was going to rule from that day forward in the way that every other physical king, earthly king that they knew about, but that wasn't what Jesus was planning. But because what Jesus was planning didn't line up with what they uh, expected him to be planning, they ran away. Their faith faltered. Their faith failed because their faith was in their expectations, not in Jesus. You see, what we end up doing when we take our expectations uh, and, and uh, plan according to what we expect the future to look like, instead of planning according to what Jesus instructs, when we, when we uh, plan in that way, what we're doing is we're removing God and we're removing faith from the equation. That doesn't mean that planning is not necessary, that we should not plan. And it doesn't mean that planning is a bad thing. But attempting to formulate a a rational plan for the future that does not need God's hand for fulfillment. Now, understand what I just said. Attempting to formulate a rational plan for the future that does not need God's hand for fulfillment is like trying to assemble a 10,000-piece puzzle in the dark without gravity. It's impossible. It it cannot happen because when you finish, you'll never know how many pieces you missed or what it was supposed to look like to begin with. You know, in thinking about that analogy, I looked up... uh, really big puzzles. And I came across an 18,000 piece puzzle on Amazon, but I noticed that it had free delivery and free returns because inevitably you're going to start putting this thing together and be like, there's no way of putting together an 18,000 piece puzzle and you send it back to Amazon because the thing has free returns. But that's what it's like when we try to formulate a plan, try to plan for our future that, Does not need God's intervention. We're trying to put together a puzzle in the dark without gravity, not knowing how many pieces we're missing or what it's supposed to look like in the end. We're missing the key component, and that is God, and that is faith. We're trying to plan God out of our lives when we formulate our expectations in that way, just like the disciples were doing. And here's the thing. Uh, the thing is that God will never give us a life where we do not need him. God will never give us a life where we do not need him. He's not going to give us this uh, you know, this incredible life where we never need to pray again because everything is perfect as far as we can tell in our lives. God's never going to do that. He's never going to give us a life where we don't need him because what's the point in him doing that? Because we, we need to have faith in God every step of the way, and that's where he's going to lead us. He's going to lead us uh, you know, by giving us one step. We take that step. He's going to give us the next step so that we trust him more than we trust ourselves. Because when we end up relying on ourselves, we're going to go down a path that's going to lead us into a ditch, that's going to lead us into failure, that's going to lead us into a life that is ruined. God's going to lead us into a place of blessing. God's going to lead us into a place of exception. God's going to lead us into a place of abundance in his interpretation if we follow him and him alone and not have faith in our expectations but have faith in him, have faith in Jesus. He's not going to give us a life where we do not need him. So we can have expectations and we can plan, but when we plan for a life without God's intervention and provision— we are planning for a life outside of God's will. When we plan for a life without God's intervention or provision, we're planning for a life outside of God's will. And that is a devastating place to operate. That is a devastating place to operate. So that's the behind the scenes of where we're going to be looking. Let's take a look at a guy whose expectations did not destroy his faith. Verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So it says he railed at him. He's he's mocking Jesus in the same way the religious leaders did, in the same way the soldiers did. He's railing at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. If you are, prove it, but also save us. You know, you're going to get down at the cross. Get us down. We're in the same boat you're in. We're getting crucified. Right. You can save yourself and you can save us. So he is maybe a little tongue in cheek, but he's mocking Jesus here. He's mocking him. And while he's being crucified, the other thief speaks up. So the one thief is using his dying breath to insult Jesus but in that same moment the other thief speaks up verse uh, 40 but the other rebuked him saying do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we need uh, and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong now look at that he said, we are being punished justly because we're thieves. We're being, we broke the law. And you break the law, you get punished. He's saying, we're being punished justly. We're being punished because we did something punishable. He says, but Jesus is not. Apparently, this was a widely known thing that Jesus was innocent. He's saying, this man did nothing wrong, and he's being punished. And we're, Why are you saying what you're saying? There's no need to say what you're saying. You're getting what you deserve. Jesus is not. Shut your mouth, basically, is where he's going with this. Uh, Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus. So he turns from speaking to the man. He turns to speak to Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, look at those words. There's so much there. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So speaking to Jesus, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, your kingdom. So that implies that he knows who Jesus is, that he knows that Jesus has a kingdom, that he knows Jesus is a king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not saying save me now, pull me off the cross so I don't physically die. He's saying when you come into your, when something after this life happens, remember me. The man is acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. He's acknowledging who Jesus is. And he's following Jesus in that moment. All right? Now look uh, at what Jesus says to him in verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you, you, he says, today you and I will be in heaven together. It's what Jesus is saying. The thief on the cross, the believing thief, did not allow current experience or current expectation to defy the promise, the promises of God and it would seem that he is the only one who believed in Jesus even as Jesus is dying even as Je- the disciples fled they're the ones who were supposed to believe but they they ran away And here the thief is the one who believes. He is the one who believes. Jesus' brothers did not believe. It tells us that in the scripture. They didn't believe until he rose from the dead. And so the thief now is the only one declaring belief, declaring faith. When everyone else had run away. When everyone else's faith had been shattered because their expectations were not realized. And what's even more interesting is that Jesus died before the thief did. And the thief's faith, as far as we can tell from the passage, does not waver. In Mark chapter five, uh, or at the in Mark chapter fifteen, it says that Pilate was surprised that Jesus died so early. And then in John chapter nineteen, the the guards, in order to to you know move the crucifixion along, broke the legs of the two thieves so they would suffocate faster. But they didn't do it to Jesus because he was already dead. And so the thief believed not only in the midst of the one he was believing in being crucified, he believed even after Jesus was dead. Jesus' death did not deter the faith of the thief on the cross. He didn't follow Jesus like the disciples did, as far as we know, day in, day out with Jesus. But he still had faith. We don't know what his expectations were. We know the disciples, they had expectations, and their expectations uh, uh, did not become reality. That's why they fled. But the thief on the cross did not allow his experience or expectations to ruin his faith. His faith was more powerful than his expectations. His faith was more powerful than his experience, because experience told him that, that we're all dying expectation of a first century Jew should have told him that the Messiah, the Son of God, is not supposed to die. But he had faith anyway. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus telling him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' death did not disrupt the faith of the thief. His, His... Faith was in Jesus, not in his expectation of Jesus or his expectation of his own life or his own life circumstances or his faith wasn't in other people or what other people expected of him. His faith was in Jesus himself. Expectations have great potential, have great potential to Disable faith. Expectations have great potential to disable faith like a, a mower to grass, cutting it short when it, really, when it starts to really grow. Expectations can disable our faith, but not so for the thief on the cross. He had faith even still. He had strong faith, I would argue, and strong faith is powerful. Strong faith is so focused that it no longer hears the shout of expectation. Strong faith is so focused on the thing that it has faith in that it no longer hears the shouts of expectation, of my expectation of the future, of others' expectation of me. I'm having faith in Jesus, and that's all that matters. Jesus is going to guide my way. Jesus is going to show me the path. Jesus is going to lead me where he needs me to go. And so you have to ask yourself, just as I have to ask myself, do you have strong faith? Do you have strong faith? And if you say, well, well, I don't know, or, or no, not really, what, what you need to do then in answer to that question really is analyze your faith, is analyze it, is, is examine it. And what's key in that moment is if I ask that question, do you have strong faith? And your instant answer, your thoughtful answer even was, yes, I have strong faith. Well, There's a problem there. Because if you think you have strong faith, you don't. Because humility is a key component of strong faith. We should always be growing. We should always be strengthening our faith. And if we ever come to a point where we say, yeah, I've got strong faith, that is pride. And pride is crippling. Pride destroys our faith. We need to continually be moving towards Jesus, not be the one saying, yeah, I'm good, I'm strong, I've got all the faith in the world. Only God can be the true, you know, analyzer of that fact. We need to look at our faith and say, where can I be stronger? How can I strengthen my faith? Do you want strong faith? Then follow Jesus. You do you want strong faith? Then have faith in Jesus, not in your expectations. Have faith in Jesus's provision. Have faith in Jesus's uh, uh, intervention. Have faith in Jesus. Strong faith comes from a, a reliance on Jesus, and that comes from uh, uh, you know implanting ourselves in His Word in Scripture, devoting ourselves to prayer, and following. Jesus wherever he leads us or as we saw last week obeying the last thing he told us to do until he tells us to do something new something else having faith in Jesus not ourselves not our own expectations so do you want strong faith because in order to have strong faith we must first have faith because strong faith starts as faith strong faith starts as faith we have to have faith to begin with faith has to start somewhere so you have to ask yourself then do you want faith do you want faith to believe that jesus is god's son that he died so your sins would be forgiven then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die do you want faith today believe in jesus today Put it in the comment section. I believe. I want to be- Click on that button below me that says, I want to make a decision. That link below me. Click on that. Make a decision today. Believe in Jesus today. Have faith today. Begin with faith and grow in faith to develop strong faith. Do you want strong faith? Do you want faith? It starts now. What will you do now to begin in this moment to have strong faith? Do you want strong faith?